Welcome to the Winning with Shopify podcast. This is the podcast that will teach you to take your Shopify store and turn it into a business growing sales machine. It has the latest marketing, email, sales, SEO, and social media advice, and also have strategies and tips from the experts without fluff. Your host is Nick Truman. He's a Shopify expert and the CEO of JustAskParker.com, a global specialist marketing agency for Shopify owners. Nick has over 13 years experience in digital marketing, from PPC and SEO through to digital transformation of businesses. He's helped hundreds of brands from startup Shopify stores through to international enterprises that operate in hundreds of countries. Nick will be sharing his knowledge and in interviewing the experts to help you and your journey to success. This episode is sponsored by Bright Pearl. Bright Pearl is inviting you to discover how to win with automation at a series of free virtual events. These include a webinar with Spotify about exactly how to automate your orders and save yourself hours every week. And it's completely free. Discover more and sign up now at brightpearl.com forward slash life is short. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Nick Truman. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Winning with Shopify podcast. I hope you're all staying well. Um, it's been a very, very strange year so far. We're over halfway, which is the good news. The bad news is the evenings and nights are going to start drawing in, certainly for us in the, uh, the Northern Hemisphere. Anyone in South Africa, Australia, South America, etc., Congratulations, summer is on its way, and we're all very jealous. Well, I mean, you could say that in the UK at the moment as well. But anyone who's not tuned in before, my name's Nick. I host the podcast. I run a little business in London called Spec. We're a little digital consultancy, and I'm also the CEO of Just Ask Parker, some of which you would have just heard in the intro. We've got quite a lot going on at the moment. So I'm going to give you guys a little signpost of some of the amazing free resources and other freebies that are going on around Just Ask Parker and Spec, as well as this podcast, the Winning with Shopify podcast. The first one is we've got a Facebook group, which I flag every week. We're getting several new members a week, which is great. What I'm really trying to instigate at the moment is the conversation. Um, it's been my biggest challenge. So if you've got any Shopify questions, stuff you're trying to do, or you found something amazing recently that'd be useful to other Shopify store owners, please do go and uh, contribute in that group. To find it, you just go on Facebook and search Winning with Shopify, same name as the podcast. One of the biggest things in there at the moment is a pinned post that I put at the top of the group just to make it nice and clear. That pinned post has a link to Eventbrite because we are running a free webinar and it's all about how to grow your Shopify store. So we're going to be showing some really nice visual examples through the webinar. I'm going to be doing some of the talks and so is my colleague Byron from Parker. Some of our Parker clients will know Byron very, very well. So please go and check out that link. It's free to sign up. The webinar itself is on the 7th of July, and it's going to be from 4 p.m. till 5.30 p.m. in the UK, which then means in the US it'll be nice early morning stuff. So porridge and cereal at the ready, as well as obviously a coffee. Today, we're going to be finishing up a very important series that I've thoroughly enjoyed, which has been all around the business side of Shopify. And today is the penultimate episode that I've been talking about a lot. Just before we dive into that, I'm just going to give you a very quick heads up as to what is going on in our next series, which is going to be going on throughout July and possibly into August as well. We've got some amazing experts and some really popular and uh, successful Shopify stores coming on. And the theme of that series is going to be 
how to build a killer Shopify store. So how to get your store converting well, how to lure in the right kind of customers, and generally how to start growing your business by having an amazing store. So we're going to be looking at things like apps and chatbots and design and UX and content and marketing and all the rest of it. So we're going to try and cover as much as we can over a sort of four to eight week period. And the four to eight weeks will depend on how many and who my guests are. But without further ado, let's come back to today's episode all about exiting a Shopify store, which another way of phrasing it is how to sell your e-commerce business. I've got the absolute expert at this who's both been there and done it, and he's also helping other businesses do this now. His name is Ben Leonard, and if you're a regular listener to the show, I'm sure you've heard Ben's voice before. But Ben, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back. It's good to be back on the show. Great stuff. It's good to have you, Ben. And for anyone who's not tuned in before, do you want to just give us a really quick one, two, three on you, your background, and what you're up to these days? Yeah, sure. I got into e-commerce in early 2016. My background before that was environmental science. I stumbled into e-commerce. I got really ill and had to take a break from work and my fitness hobbies. So to fill my time and give me something to do, I started a brand of fitness equipment called Beast Gear. And turns out I was pretty good. So I grew that business over just over three years to mid seven figures selling in the UK, Middle East, Australia, Europe. And I sold that business in late 2019 right before the the buying and selling of e-commerce businesses really kind of exploded as it has in the last uh, year and a half-ish. And that experience, I sold that through a broker who were okay, but there was quite a lot that, that could have been better. And a lot of the work was done by myself and my accountant, who turns out had about 20 years mergers and acquisitions experience. So we put our heads together and created a better brokerage. So that's what I'm doing now. Ecom brokers, I'm helping other people exit their e-commerce business like I did. And I'm still building brands now as well with a view to an exit, partly because I love it and partly because in order for me to properly understand what it's like for the the, the clients that we're working with, I, I have to have that current lived experience because it's such a fast moving industry. So that's who I am and that's what I'm doing. Nice, nice. I mean, already got 50 questions for today's episode, uh, just, just off the back of hearing that. So yeah, I think first place to start then the why why would you exit a business why would you try and leave it one day when you're working so hard on it today yeah well there's plenty of reasons i'll speak with a bit of of, of personal experience and then talk about what what some of the other reasons might be so for me and the reason i want to give this this personal insight is because so many people will probably have if not the same but similar mindsets to this it was just the right thing for me and my family at the time I was, I just turned 30, my wife was pregnant, we wanted to move house. And I knew that my business had become a very valuable asset, which I could sell, frankly, to to give my family a lot of financial stability for the future. And so it was the right thing to do for me and my family at the time. Other reasons to sell, sometimes you just have had enough. E-commerce is a tough game. It's overwhelming. You are spending so much of your day running around like a headless chicken putting out fires. And there comes a time when you may have just not be, you may not be waking up with the same passion that you once did. And that's okay. And it might be time to pass the baton on to somebody else. I'm literally working with a client right now whose reason for selling his business is he, well, he, he's bought a boat and now he wants to sail around the world. Why not? Sometimes it's a case of, we're working with people who are actually retiring or, or getting ready to retire. And that, that's why. Or they have a new project and they want to raise money for it. They could sell their business for a significant amount of cash, use some of that cash to make themselves financially secure and, and use the rest for a new project that they're actually getting more passionate about. 
often it is is the, the getting the business off the ground and the, the, the initial growth phase, which is the most exciting and the part that makes us spring out of bed in the morning to get going on it. And entrepreneurs are finding themselves more excited about this new idea than the one that they actually really need to keep keep working on. And so they start to explore the opportunity of selling the initial one and using the money for their, their new exciting idea. Cool. What's really interesting, actually, is I, I was looking for an answer that was like, because you get a big lump sum of money, make loads of money really quickly. But what you've done is given me all the other reasons, <laughs> which is quite interesting, actually. Yeah. The point being, that there's so much more actually going on than just just purely like, a, oh, look, some cash, let's take it. I guess in a sense, it's the same reason you wouldn't just suddenly wake up one day and sell your house or your car. There's assets, there's cash there, but actually selling a business is a bit more complicated, certainly because it's it's not just a cash transaction, is it? There's normally handover periods and all that kind of stuff to follow. Yeah, absolutely. It's not necessarily quite as, as straightforward as, as you might think. It depends on how, how a deal is structured and we can get into that, but and it depends on what both the seller and the buyer want in terms of how much commitment the seller has after the, the initial sale in terms of whether that's uh, staying on in any capacity or an earnout or retaining equity. There's a million ways to make these things work. Definitely, definitely. So let's let's start from the beginning. Let's go kind of chronologically then. Let's skip out that stage of starting and growing because I think that's we, we cover that all the time. But let's let's talk firstly about how do you start structuring a company if you do plan to sell to exit at some point in the future? Is it a case of doing things differently even in those early stages where it might just be yourself? It is. So when I first started my first brand, I, I didn't envisage the exit, which was a mistake. Fortunately, I didn't, when it, when it was then time for me to, to sell, I didn't wake up one day and say, I want to sell. I woke up one day and I said, I'm now going to, to plan to sell. So if you haven't already thought about an exit, that's okay. But now you know, listening to this podcast, your, your homework is to start thinking about how you might go about that. Because the worst thing you can do is wake up saying, right, I want to sell and I want to sell now because you're going to have some work to do. Whereas if you woke up some time ago and said, I want to either plan to sell or I want to get my business. I don't plan to sell, but I want to get my business in such a state that when I do, it will be a lot less painful. Then that's, that's the way to go about it. You mentioned about planning, and I think that's important. E even if it's a, I don't know if I'm going to sell, but actually having that as an option one day is useful. What are the sort of things people need to start thinking about today to be ready for that or to be heading towards that? Yeah, well, I think it, it's about having a constant thread through your business that everything is well looked after, neat and tidy and well managed. Because if you were to turn this on its head and say, well, what would I be looking at when I wanted to buy a business? You wouldn't touch a business that when you did your due diligence, and that's what a potential buyer is going to do, they're going to go through a fairly intense phase of due diligence. Hmm. But when you look at it, it's not ship shape. Think about all the... Uh, all the boring admin -y stuff in your business, right? So are your accounts actually properly managed by an accountant or are you doing them yourself? Are you having them audited? Have you got accrual accounts rather than cash-based accounts? What about intellectual property? Have you got the intellectual property you need in terms of trademarks, patents, design registrations? Those are the broad basis. And then it's just a case of making sure that you have everything neat and tidy. So are you keeping proper records? Do you have records of all of your purchase orders with your suppliers? Do you have 
records of all of the contracts that you have with your suppliers or with any freelancers? Do you have evidence that anything that was ever designed or made for you, the copyright has actually been handed over to you? Last thing you want when it comes to sell your business is find that actually somebody else owns a really important piece of intellectual property and not you. And so it's about running your business well, essentially. And a well-run business lends itself really nicely to being sold. And and what we often find is that when we revert, flip this on its head, so somebody comes to us and says, well, we want to sell our business. And we work with them to basically take what is, you know, people listening to this will say, we'll have fantastic looking businesses. They'll have great products. Their social media is phenomenal. They've got an incredible YouTube channel. Their Shopify site's amazing. And it looks really slick. But then when a potential buyer comes to look at it, they kind of lift up the bonnet to look at what's inside. And it's a mess. You've got Google Sheets here. You've got Evernote there. You've got stuff in the owner's head. You've got random freelancers just kind of doing what they want. You haven't got systems in place. You haven't got proper procedures. You haven't got everything well documented. And if somebody were to ask you for something, it would be a bit of a headache to dig it out. And so when we get business owners um, going on really well, getting a head start essentially on the due diligence phase when a buyer comes to look at the business, but really getting everything neat and tidy and properly organized. But it's not rocket science. It's really just about organization. We find that the happy side effect of that is that the business suddenly is, is running a lot smoother. The cogs in the machine are turning more nicely because we've put oil into it. And so the happy side effect of that is that your growth actually accelerates, which then makes your business more valuable. So the two things feed into each other. So from the start, come back to your original question, If you make sure that you're just really meticulous about all of your record keeping, your accounts, your intellectual property, your systems and procedures, then you'll find that the business is a hell of a lot more sellable. And that's mostly all there there is to it on on that side of things. I think there's that's the perfect world scenario. And I completely agree with it. The reality that I think everybody like you and I have sold a business will probably say that the initial phase of the business, it has to be a bit of a, a smash and grab in terms of time and how systems work. And I think until you've got a decent profit margin and you know we're now making money, we're developing, numbers are going up, we're hiring stuff. It's, sometimes it's okay, I think, to do that kind of headless chicken, let's just get this thing off the ground and see if it works. Oh, it is working now. And then you take a step back and reorganize it all. You might not grow for three to six months, but you're organizing everything on the basis that and then when we do start growing in a few months time again, then, you know, we pump up our advertising budgets, et cetera, the systems are ready to plug. And actually it's quite an interesting thing to then show the potential buyer one day to say, look, this is what was going on. This is what we did about it. Now look at the results. Yeah. And it's again, it's, it's quite just, just to say that if somebody's sitting there thinking like, you know, I have two orders a day and now I'm going to start being really meticulous with my accounts and stuff. The time may not warrant it until you actually reach a point is, uh, is what I'm saying. I think that's fair. I think riding by the seat of your pants during the initial um, phase is, is, <laughs> is fair enough. I'm not going to mark anyone down for, for not doing that because I, I, I did that too. I'm speaking with the benefit of hindsight here. But certainly getting everything sorted, essentially, once you're over that initial phase is, is, is important. You know, a really easy question to ask yourself is, if something happens to me tomorrow, is anyone going to be able to run this business? Or, or something happens to our, to our, to our team or, or particular team members, is anyone going to be able to take this business and run it? And if the answer is no or yes, but with difficulty, then you need to revisit 
what's under the bonnet of your business, essentially. I think that, I mean, that was going to be one of my next questions was to say, well, how important is the owner to the business? We've certainly had conversations in every business I've ever been involved in is, is there anyone who's not interchangeable? Because the first thing we're going to do is get insurance cover in case something happens to that person. And then secondly, how do we then in the longer term, how do we change that? Build enough processes that if any team member left or something happening, directors and owners included, the business, you know, how many months could that business still function absolutely normally or as close to normally as possible without that person there? Which is actually, as a business owner, is quite liberating because it really is. I mean, three, four years ago, every time I was on holiday, I was constantly on my emails. My lovely other half, she was very patient with me and knew that some days I'd get an email and go, I can't come out today. I can't be on holiday. I just have to sit in the hotel room on my laptop. Otherwise, I'm going to come back to a disaster or actually we're going to lose quite a lot of cash significantly and all the rest of it. Whereas when I go on holiday now, I think I had about three or four emails to answer when I got back after a week away recently. Given how busy, I mean, there were more emails than that for sure, but there was nothing I was needed for. Everything was dealt with. I didn't come back going, right, I need to fix this, sort that out, have a conversation with them, fire them, hire them. There's none of that. It, was, it does run smoothly to a point. Yeah, there's a great book about that called Clockwork by Mike Michalowicz. Ooh, nice. I don't know if you've uh, read it. He's the guy that wrote the book Profit First, which is quite popular. But yeah, Clockwork by Mike Michalowicz is exactly about what you just said. Being able basically getting yourself out of all the nitty gritty day to day to to the point where you can you can go on holiday and not worry about it because you are replaceable essentially definitely definitely because i think turning it back to exiting if the business requires you then nobody can buy it it's that or nobody would buy it it's that simple very few people would want to generally buy a business where it's a sort of i'm now going to have to be at the helm all the time i think if i'd rare scenario might be that if i sold all of my agencies and somebody else was running an agency quite successfully, but said, I've been involved in a car crash. I'm not going to be able to work anymore. Someone needs to buy this, but it is reliant on me. I might be able to come in and negotiate a really, really strong deal from my perspective to say, well, I'm going to come in and run this thing because I am actually free full time and I know what I'm doing. That's so rare, though. To sell to a, a bigger e-commerce store or a venture capitalist, they want to know that when you're gone, the business is going to run itself. They're actually buying what I would call a business versus a lifestyle business, which is quite a common quite a common phrase in the UK. Yeah, it is. And you're, you're absolutely right. Potential buyers are not interested in buying themselves a job. Yes. They're interested in buying a, a business or, or, or rather, another way to think about it is, is the brand that can slot into their existing systems and processes. For sure. Let's talk as well then about assets. Because this is a word that eluded me for many years until I sold a business. And I honestly went on Google one night and searched, what is a company asset? And it, you talk about hindsight, if I could re-roll the clock back to 2011 when I started my first business that I sold, I would have done things incredibly differently back then. Everything from employment contracts, the processes to, again, what I want to ask about now is assets. What is an asset? Well, essentially, it's anything of value that your business owns or has created. And that is everything, including cash, raw materials, stock. Also, if you've got a warehouse, your intellectual property, all the way down to your printers, right? But I also like to think about what, because we're, we're talking about e-commerce here, your digital assets. Your, what's your social media following? How many subscribers have you got on YouTube? What's your email list? So we've got these digital assets now, as well as the traditional physical ones, traditionally associated as a, as a business asset. And these things are all really important when it comes to determining what your business is worth. 
Sure. And I think assets, you can tell I've been looking at, at this again recently. Assets are a very interesting thing that I found, something that I believe you can be quite tactical with when you do sell a business. I'm not looking to sell mine in the near future, but I am building what I'm calling the asset column. So instead of renting an office, we just bought one. And that means whatever the value of that office is, our business is worth that same value instantly. The irony is we've been paying rent for nearly 10 years on different offices, or I have certainly different offices inside London, out in the countryside, all over the place. If I, It's always that thing in hindsight, if I just got a mortgage on an office a long time ago and every payment I'd made in rent had actually been into a mortgage and I was slowly buying that building, my business or those buildings, my business would be sitting on a massive asset pile but our actual cash flow and outgoings would have been pretty much the same. Yep. We would have just been paying, same reason people buy a house, you're just paying a mortgage instead. I think the other thing you mentioned as well about social, just want to clear one thing up because I've been brought in by investment companies quite a lot, especially in e-commerce, mm. to do like an audit of a business and give them some real kind of black and white advice on what's going on with this company so they can decide, and I've been very specific in saying they decide, I, not me advising, they decide if they should buy the company or not. Social media followings are really, really important and email databases and that sort of thing. What I found is some investment companies are really savvy at analyzing those audiences and some are not. So if you buy a load of followers and they don't engage, it's very, 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 very rare that an investment firm won't see past that. I think you need to make sure there is engagement there. The first thing they'll look at is to say, well, you've got two and a half million followers on Instagram because you're giving away loads of free stuff and loads of cool free advice, but none of them are converting into customers. Yeah. And then the potential buyer is then going to make a decision. Do we think we can monetize that audience versus a much better equation is them going, that audience is already monetized. It has created a revenue stream into the business. Yeah. So again, just a word of caution, just be really careful on this stuff. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Several years ago, when investors were less savvy, they would have seen an audience of tens or hundreds of thousands and, and, and got very excited about it. But now, of course, they are uh, being much more thorough in their due diligence on these things. And just coming back for a moment to the asset thing yes. about the office, that, that for an agency, I think that's a pretty good idea. If you've got an e-commerce business selling, 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 you know, it's a physical products brand, selling products off your, your Shopify site, maybe your own marketplaces as well, being fulfilled in a 3PL warehouse, having an office would not necessarily be attractive for a potential buyer who may not even be in the same country as you and wants to handle everything digitally, dealing all the way from manufacturer all the way through to your 3PL warehouse. And they, they're not looking for an office or, or owning a warehouse, that type of thing. So it's important to think about who is my potential buyer going to be and what would attract or detract them from buying my business. And then linked to this is is whether the sale is going to be an asset sale or an entity sale are you going to sell joe blogs limited or are you going to sell the assets that joe blogs limited owns and that's important particularly when we're dealing with transatlantic business quite a lot of buyers in the e-commerce space particularly from the, they're from the states will push quite hard for an asset purchase rather than an entity purchase because they don't want to take on any liability that the limited company has. And if you push for an entity sale, they'll often try to negotiate a discount. 
typically, particularly British and European sellers really want to sell the entity because they can benefit from capital gains tax. When you sell the assets, you can't benefit from the capital gains tax. But when you sell the entity, you can benefit from, from, from capital entrepreneurs relief in the capital gains tax rules. Yes. So with entrepreneurs relief, you only pay 10% rather than 20% tax. The threshold up until I think last year was 10 million. And now it's just a million unfortunately. So that's just a few things to think about with regards to assets. Yeah, this is one reason I love having you on the show, Ben, is uh, you, you preempt all of my questions. So um, I was going to ask specifically about the entity sale versus asset, because I've done both. I've bought two entities and I bought one set of assets and I've sold, I did an asset sale. A few buzzwords to Google if you're thinking about going down the asset sale route are things like, are you going to sell the debtors list this is something that literally doubled the size. I mean, it was a tiny transaction back in the day, but it doubled the size of a asset sale that I did by keeping the debtors list. So any invoices that I had raised up until the sale date were still due to me, but I had sold the assets out of the business, which was at the time it was an agency. So it was the staff, the processes, the website, the brand, etc. But if I hadn't done that, then all of the debtors would have been due to pay the new owners even on old outstanding invoices, which then means I would have lost out on a load of cash. Essentially, that's money that we've already earned. It's just not in the bank account yet. So that's why right at the last minute, one of my financial advisors come and said, Nick, have you looked at this? And I said, no, what is that? And he Googled it and, oh my gosh, I've just made myself tens of thousands of pounds. And the buyers were like, yeah, we don't care either way, which was slightly naive, I think, because if they, if they had bought the debtors list and the price hadn't changed, they would have been entitled to tens of thousands more of pounds. So Again, an asset sale was that side, but certainly, as you mentioned, UK and, and Europe, it's changed its name now. But yeah, the entrepreneurial tax relief, as it's commonly known, is fantastic. They, they keep changing the thresholds, which is slightly frustrating. But yeah, capital gains is a real sting in the UK. It's a very controversial topic when we're talking about tax rates. Yeah, it is. It is a controversial one. But your your point about the, de- the debtors list is, is a good one. And it looks like you benefited quite nicely from that. So these are all things to talk about and think about when it's when it comes to a sale. And when you are selling, you ought to be represented in, in a couple of ways, one with a good broker with, with experience on, on all sides, whether it's the e-commerce side or the M&A side or the accountancy side. And then when it comes to actually thrashing out the deal, having a, an, an experienced mergers and acquisitions attorney or a solicitor on your side to help you navigate these minefields is really important. I see people going it alone far too often and uh, ending up getting taken to the cleaners and not really getting what their business is worth because they haven't thought about these things. Yeah, definitely. I think counsel is always important. We've got somebody on our board who advises us on a regular basis, and he's bought and sold several businesses over the years, very similar to ours. And every sort of six months, he and I have a one-to-one catch-up. And I say, right, what's the business worth? Are we going in the right direction? Is there anything we're doing that makes us I mentioned earlier about lifestyle business versus a business. Lifestyle business is a business that's designed to suit your lifestyle, which is very much what it is if you are a freelancer, if you're contracting, or if it's just you running a small Shopify store, chances are the store runs around you. As in, if you're away for a week, less happens, etc. Whereas a business, as we were saying before, which is what you really want to aim for if you do plan to sell one day, is much more focused on things like processes, that everything kind of ticks along without you. Something, something that an advisor mentioned to me the other day was to think about if, if, if we sell another business in, in the future, how many months or years 
should the business have been running without me or without any directors needing day-to-day involvement, i.e. the people that are going to be cashing in and disappearing when the sale happens. And that was quite interesting, I thought, because it actually says, well, if you can prove that I've basically been on holiday for 12 months, here's my business, it was quite a sound investment for them. If it's growing without you, then there's every faith it will continue to grow without you with very minimal input, as well as all the other reasons they'll buy it, which is, as we said, the assets or they might offer a complimentary product to what your store does. So if they bought your, your business or your store, they can upsell, cross-sell between the two, et cetera. So again, when Ben said about finding the right buyer, that's a whole, and I'm covering lots of topics here, Ben, but um, <laughs> even finding the right buyer is really, really important because the way you sell your business, and that's both the contractual bit of cash moving, but also the way that you stand up on you know the front of the room and say, right, let me walk you through our business. And you do a, what I would call a sales pitch, this is why you should buy it, is a much clearer reason if it's not just an investment firm who want another whatever on their books. If you can say, well, if you buy this, you can cross-sell to this customer base and vice versa. Well, that's that makes it more exciting to them. So you can structure the deal accordingly, which you've not made any changes to your business, but you've increased the value of it quite significantly. Yeah, and that's important is thinking about, because again, this is something that people overlook is they they have, you know, they're, maybe they're keeping a spreadsheet or they've got a back of an envelope calculation on more or less what they reckon their business is worth you know, based simply on the, the last 12 months of profit. But what they're not thinking about is how can we squeeze more value out of it without actually doing anything? And when you work with, with a good broker, who's got the experience on the, the, the numbers side, the accountancy side, there's a lot of additional ways to realize, squeeze extra value out of your business, which if you, you know, people are selling their e-commerce businesses now on, on marketplaces even, or they're just going direct to, to kind of roll up acquirers in this space. And they're not seeing this extra value squeezed out of their business. So for instance, suppose you have a, a product it's a physical product. And recently, you improved the design and made it more efficient. And as a result, your actual cost of goods is now lower. And you did that three months ago. Well, traditionally, we value a business based on the trailing 12 months performance. It's not really fair that the potential buyer would realize the benefit of the product now having a lower cost but you're only getting two months worth of that lower cost in the trailing 12 months performance. And so we would extrapolate back every unit you've sold in the previous 12 months as if it was the new lower cost, which will add value to your business without you actually having done anything. Well, you've done the lowering of the cost. But no, I hear what you're saying. It's yeah, we've done that. Therefore, there is a particular milestone that needs to be taken into account and pushing things back. But yeah, no, I think it's, it's a really good analogy, actually. Another, another thing that I think is quite interesting that we should talk about on this episode now is, is around valuations. So how do you value a business? Like what are some of the factors that a buyer is going to take into account? Yeah, so basically, in a nutshell, your, your business is, is more or less valued on your last 12 months profit. But we can dig into that a, a little bit more deeply. So uh, we apply a multiple to determine what your business is worth. And it's a multiple of your trailing 12 months. And we, we typically talk about something called seller's discretionary earnings, which is basically your net income plus addbacks. So if your seller's discretionary earnings is, say, 100000 your business is two years old, it's fairly diversified in terms of 
you're selling maybe on your own website, some marketplaces, and you're selling across UK and several other international markets, and it's growing. Then you, you well, now this, here's an important factor, right? Because you're going to have listeners that are doing 100% Shopify, but you're also going to have listeners that have got a significant proportion on marketplaces, right? And generally, the, the more control you have over the sales and the customer data, the higher your multiple is going to be. So, for example, so if you had a business that was 100% marketplace, 100% Amazon, for, for what I've just described, 100 grand SDE, two years old, diversified, you might get 3x. So your multiple will be 3x. But if you're doing significantly more on Shopify, 80, 90, 100%, we're looking at more, you know, 5, 6x. On the other hand, if your sales discretion earnings is, is much higher than that, say half a million, you got, you're got 100% on your own site, lots of intellectual property, massive growth, enormous cult-like tribe of fans following you all over social media. We're looking at, at a, a much higher multiple, six, seven, even even 8x, it, it, we, we could be talking about. Nice. Compared with businesses, there's been a boom in the buying of businesses selling wholly through the Amazon FBA model, where multiples are are between um, you know one and a half and four x. What's really interesting about this though is you've got lots of models of roughly how much a business is worth. What happens if a company comes and knocks on the door and says we want to buy it, but we're not going on any of those multiples? We're just going to make you an offer based on what it is worth to us. How does that conversation go? You know, how do you deal with that as well? Because I I know for a fact that that's not normally what happens. It's, it's good to have the sum in the back of your mind, but. Normally, it's then down to a, well, it's not worth that much to us, so we'll make a lower offer and you can take it or leave it sort of thing. So how do you deal with something like that? Well, first of all, it's really important that you establish a competitive environment. So a potential buyer, in a, in a competitive environment with several buyers, you're probably going to end up with 90 or 100% cash up front and the rest on the back end on some sort of an earnout. And you're probably going to get as much as what you took the market, the business to market for, if not more. But the, the scenario you've described where somebody's knocked on your door and said, well, this is what it's worth to us. That is the nightmare scenario where you don't have a competitive environment. Buyers who, who, who work this way are, are praying that you don't bring anyone else to the table yep. who also wants your business. Because then they will either... Either they won't get your business because you won't sell because it's not what you want for it, or they'll take your business off your hands for nothing near what it's worth and terms that suit them rather than you. That's how that works, which is it comes back to what I was saying before about why it's so important that you work with, with a broker to market your business to a pool of the right buyer who sees the value in your business and adding it to their portfolio or, or taking it on and absorbing it into their existing setup or whatever it might be, could be that you're selling to a competitor, could be you're, you're selling to private equity, could be that you're selling to, to an e-commerce aggregator, whoever it is, there needs to be a pool of these right buyers so that you have this competitive environment. I think it's a, it's a very, very good point you make. And I think the, the idea of having some sort of benchmark at any point, I think is, is absolutely crystal important. I think the, the idea of having at least several people bidding and make them all aware that that is what is going on, mm. I think is a good start for sure. And I think you keep coming back to the advice bit, and I can't agree more. I think when when I sold mine, even just that debtors list comment, that comment alone was worth tens of thousands to me. It didn't change the price that I paid to the person for that advice, but it changed the way I sold the business, made me lots more money, etc. The earnouts are interesting, aren't they? Yeah. Because the earnouts sometimes can only look like oh, an extra twenty, thirty percent, or not extra, sorry, but I'll get eighty percent of the money up front, twenty percent later. 
But if it all goes well, that 20% is normally based on some sort of piece of elastic, isn't it? It's, it's often a lot higher than that if things go well, can also be lower if they don't go well. Yeah. So with the thing with earnout targets is uh, the buyers really want there to be an earnout and to, to put as much on the back end as they possibly can, obviously, because it suits them. And obviously the, se- the seller would rather have less on that. And these targets tend to be either on a quarterly or an annual basis. It basically says if your business achieves XYZ income, we'll pay you whatever. But what this means is that the structure needs to be tight so that there's a sliding scale so that you're protected. So that if you don't hit your top target by 50p, you're still you're not going to miss out on tens or hundreds of thousands of pounds or, or millions even because you haven't hit that top target. There needs to be a sliding scale such that you'll still get something. And that's another reason why working with with a mergers and acquisitions solicitor or attorney when thrashing out the final details of the deal is really, really important. Slightly linked to that is another aspect of the deal structure, which is a bit closely linked to this, is that the potential buyer will often try to get you, and I'm talking more about physical physical products, uh, e-commerce brands here, try to get you to throw in some of your inventory for free. They'll call it working capital, which is a bit of a joke because they've got typically buyers in e-commerce space have tons of capital. And and so what they'll say is we want you to throw in X number of days worth of, of stock for free, which is is not right. And it's important that when you're negotiating this deal, that that is either completely removed or minimized as much as possible. I think, again, that's an important nugget of information. I sold an e-commerce business a few years ago, a tiny transaction. But the thing I asked initially before we then started talking to some other potential buyers was basically, why are you buying this? What, what is it? What is the reason you want to buy this business? And he basically said, look, you've got a great brand. Products are really cool. I don't want the website or anything else. I just want the products. So we called his bluff a little bit and said, all right, fine. Well, we're going to shut the website and stuff. Now. Or we're going to sell that to somebody else. We'll sell the brand or whatever elsewhere. We believe that's only 30, 40% of the equation. But because of the brand, the products are worth this. So you're just going to do a wholesale transaction with us. We'll just sell you some stock and you can sell it on like we would if you're one of our wholesale partners. He then came back and said, all right, all right, fine. I actually do want the the website, the brand, the customer base, all the rest of it. Because what he was trying to do is he was trying to say to us, well, I'm only going to pay you for the stock you've got because that's the only value I see. So we said, well, on that basis, buy all the stock. We'll use that money to buy even more stock in and then we'll sell it, sell the business slightly more, making some profit out of you. At which point we sort of called his bluff and he said, all right, well, look, here's a price for it. We spoke to three other buyers. They weren't even close. Yeah, fine. We'll go, we'll go at that fee. And it, this was a rare occasion where it was a 100% buyout. It was a give us the cash. It's yours overnight, literally everything associated. And you can have X hours a week with me and the other business partner for the next three months. Yeah, it was a very small store, no staff to worry about anything like that. But um, yeah. yeah, it worked well. I dropped him an email two years later um, a few months ago and said, how's it all going? And he said, yeah, I've got sales up to a point where I'm almost living off this business now, which is great. It is a really good head start for him. And he'd pay back the money he paid us. So it all worked out really well for him, actually, as well as us. He's now talking about becoming one of my clients <laughs> and my agency, which is quite amusing. It's funny how these things often go in those kind of cycles, don't they? What, what was interesting is that if he had got, got his initial way of just buying your stock, he would have been biting his nose off to spite his face because your brand still would have existed and he would have been left with all this branded stuff. Okay, he could have sold through it, but then what? He's, what's he going to do? He doesn't have a business there. He's just bought a bunch of stock off you. So it uh, sounds like it worked out well for all concerned in the end. Yeah, definitely. I think I think it did. And as I say, it was we were literally selling phone systems at the time, mostly just the phones themselves. 
And then we found out our average customer was just buying a cheap replacement phone from us. The hilarious thing about the stock, though, just going back to that for a second, we bought all of our stuff and completely open. We bought it all from Alibaba, but we had a certain level of we need devices that are CE or whatever it's called approved in the UK, etc. And some of the guys said, yeah, we make all the kit for like Cisco and all the others. We can literally just make you a phone with your name on it. Or we can literally sell you their stuff because we have an agreement to do that. So we didn't buy their stuff just because we didn't want Cisco knocking on the door and saying, those are our phones. Where did you buy them from? And we say a distributor in China because <laughs> that's not going to bode well. And there's, you know, if we're damaging their brand or whatever, we've not gone through an official partner. And But um, yeah, we ended up getting our own stuff and it worked exactly the same, same circuit boards, et cetera. They are a universal non-patented design which comes back to what you were saying right at the start about actually getting your designs and things patented and trademarked and actually locked down so what your intellectual property is which I think is really really key we've been going 45 minutes so i think let's bring things to a close here i think the main points that i think we should summarize with and ben jump in if i've missed any from this i think the first thing is whatever stage you're at today even if you're not thinking of selling it's worth going through that exercise today wherever you and your business or your team or the company you work for are go through that exercise of making sure that everybody's interchangeable, systems work, that the accounts are logged properly, etc. Obviously, if you're just sitting there and you're working in marketing, you're only going to have access to certain divisions, but you can help play your part. Second thing is definitely get some expert advice because they'll find all these little niches. They'll help you structure a deal, etc. Third thing is if somebody approaches you or you find a buyer, talk to several buyers so you can get a bit of competition, some competitiveness to it. Because chances are you'll either end up accepting that first offer anyway, which you're going to accept, you now know it's a good offer, or you might find a better one and they up their offer. Either way, it's going to play, certainly play to your strengths. And number four, have fun with it. And the very first thing you said, Ben, right at the start, which I didn't pick up on enough, I don't think, it was around the passion for this. Ben and I have both run businesses, and I'm, I'm sure you'll agree with me, Ben, that there are grueling days. Like you, you have to be in this. Otherwise, it's all going to fall apart. I think whenever I have those days of like, oh, I'm losing my mind here, it's like straight on the phone to my advisor, like, give me a pick me up. I'm going mad here. Um, and there's, this is what you're going through. Go on holiday for a week, or actually, it's these three things that are stressing you out. So clear your diary, sort of having that kind of advice and make, but on the basis that you need to keep that passion alive. I'm a massive advocate of don't do something you're not passionate about. And this isn't a wish-washy Instagram post that's trying to make you feel good. It's a genuine, it will drive you mad if you're not passionate about it. You're not two-footed into this thing and you're not fully committed. Any other summary bits I've missed, Ben? Yeah, I think a really important one, and and I, I didn't mention it earlier and I wish I had, is find out now what your business is worth. And then think about what would I want to sell it for? Because th- then you know you have a reference point where you are. And even if you think you'll never sell, at least you know where on the map you are. Otherwise, you're kind of walking through the jungle with no map. If you then think about if you actually I do want to sell, you know, I find out oh, my business is worth a million. I don't want to sell it for less than two. Fine. You can start to reverse engineer that exit. So what you then need to think about what are the things I need to do so that my business is worth the two million that I want for it. And that's really, really important. I'm glad you said that. I completely forgot to mention this, but I call it the ejector seat button. There's an amount of money that if somebody turned up and put it on the table, I would be very tempted to go into sell mode or work out, okay, we're near that stage now. Like somebody's made a very serious inquiry around that level. And also you're not going to get, they're not going to email you going, we'll offer you this for the business. You need to have some sort of dialogue, et cetera. I often entertain those questions. We, we get asked a lot, would you want to merge up with our group? We don't offer what you do. Can we buy you out? I get it a lot. And it's, it's flattering and I do love it. And it's, 
it, it almost reminds me of like what I'm sitting on, what I've built or, or what, not me, just me, but what the team have built here, what we've built as a business. But I think, as you say, having that target and reverse engineer it, it's, you're going to get good years, bad years. Don't hold yourself, you know, over account if it's a bad year. Don't beat yourself up about it. Just know that how quickly, how steadily we're we moving towards that target. I think it's absolutely key. But as I say, I call it an ejector seat button of, you know, I'm not, I'm not looking to sell. I might sell one day my businesses, but there's, I've always got a figure in, in my mind or written down somewhere that is a, this is what it's worth today, as you say. And then also if somebody came along with this much money, I'm out, I'm done. I'm calling time because I don't want to go above that because that changes the type of business it is or whatever, whatever your reasoning might be. It might be that at that point, we're going to pay off our mortgage, go traveling for five years and we're financially secure for life. And so get to that point. And then I always, I always make the point of like, get to a point of being ready to sell and then assess your options. You might end up, as I said, merge up with a bigger group or do something more fun or reposition the company or use the extra profit to hire a few different staff that make your life a bit better. So there's always options. It's not always a sell, but certainly knowing that number, I think is really key. And even if you think you don't want to sell now or in the short term or even the medium or long term, there ha- there's going to be some kind of an end game. So understanding and getting clear with yourself how that might look and making sure that the business is in a state such that when the time does eventually come to, to think about an exit more seriously, that it's as straightforward, smooth and painless as possible because you've done this early work to A, make sure that the business is really neat and tidy and, and built to sell. And that's a book recommendation, by the way, Built to Sell by John Warrillow. <laughs> and, and B, that you, you understand what you're comfortable to sell the business for, then the whole process becomes a hell of a lot easier for, for sellers and buyers. Awesome. Well, look, Ben, thank you so much for joining us again today. It's, I think this is the third episode we've done together. And it's, as, as always, it's been a pleasure. So thank you so much. Thanks, Nick. Always fun. Great stuff. And for everybody else listening, as I said right at the start, check out the Facebook group, check out our webinar, Wednesday the 7th of July that is. So if you're listening to this after that, apologies. We'll probably do something else in the near future. Check out the Facebook group. And we'll be back again next Friday with a very, very special podcast episode, which I've already recorded well in advance. And it's with Trust Pilot and Bright Pearl. So uh, yeah, we'll see you again next week. Have a fantastic weekend and uh, hope you stay safe. Sign up for free for the Shopify-approved marketing course at 1000salesandbeyond.com and get our show notes at justaskparker.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the Winning with Shopify podcast. See you next time.